May the name of the Lord truly be praised among us, for he is mighty and great to save. Well, I met our speaker about 10 years ago, I think it was. You can really get to know a person when you're sharing a triple bunkie in a train ride between Datong City and Beijing, China. And it became apparent very quickly that Charles Price and I shared a single heart for the Lord. And we have been friends ever since, although I've admired his ministry from a distance for the most part, because he and I have things to do on Sundays and we, they're in different places. I think I've listened to more of his sermons than he has listened to my sermons. In fact, brother, have you ever listened to a sermon of mine? By your look, I take it no. Well, you aren't missing much, but anyway, I have listened to your sermons, and uh, we thank the Lord for him. I've wanted to have him here many, many times, but he had a job on Sundays as well, so I wasn't able to be here. He's a fourth pastor of the People's Church of Toronto, and uh, pastored there from 2001 to 2017. In fact, we began ministry the same day I began in Oshawa, he began in Toronto the very same day, so... We have some things in common, but most importantly, we have a common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles, would you come now and speak? Would you give him a welcome, please? Well, thank you. Thank you, Rick, very much. Actually, I did hear you preach in China. Uh, it was a group of students, I think, medical students mainly, that we were talking to who came out in a... Uh, undisclosed location. We went in cars to a place we didn't know, and there they were, waiting to hear uh, from the Word of God. But it's great to be here, and uh, as Rick said, I have nothing to do on Sundays now, so uh, that's why I'm here, actually. I, I don't have a Sunday free until 2019, so it's fun to come here, though, because it's uh, not so far from where I live. And I've known of this church for many years and enjoyed the uh, contacts that I've had with Rick over those years that he mentioned. I'm going to read to you from uh, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read from verse 13 down to verse 20. And uh, then I'm going to say a few things that are appropriate from this passage that I trust will be helpful to each of us. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but, by, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 1928 must have been a good year. That was also the year that the People's Church in Toronto was founded. In fact, last Sunday, they celebrated their 90th anniversary. I was unable to be there because I was overseas. But intriguing that last week they should celebrate their 90th there. And here I know the date isn't the same. That's the actual date of the People's Church last uh, week. But I think you preceded earlier in the year. And, uh, of course, the, the world in 1928 was very different to the world in 2018. The global population was less than 2 billion in 1928. This year, it is 7.7 billion, nearly four times as many. 1928, there were 8 million people who lived in Canada. This year, we passed the 37 million Mark. I don't know what the population in Oshawa was in 1928. I know today it's 160,000. That doesn't include the surrounding communities. But I did find a record of back in the 19th century, uh, something about the population of Oshawa. It was then about 1,000. And I was intrigued. It said there were three churches a post office, and three breweries. <laughs> one brewery to supply each church. <laughs> Actually, it says one brewery, two distilleries, but same thing, they're providers of liquor. So I don't know where this was the challenge and how many breweries there are today, how many churches there are today, but that was the statistic. Uh, statistic. Ninety years ago, the center of Christendom was in Europe and North America. I, this week, came across an article in my preparing for this morning that was uh, published in January 1929. And it was called The International Review of Missions, which gave a summary of the missionary activity in the year 1928. The big feature of that year was the International Missionary Council, which took place in Jerusalem in March and April of that year, when people came from all over the world. Wasn't it March or April that you were founded? What, April? February. Oh, February. Okay. Close. Uh, well, this was taking place at the same time, in March and April the next month. And it brought folks from all around the world to discuss how the church was going to uh, reach the world what its missionary global strategies should be. And I was very interested in reading it to see that the main issue that arose, and in the summary said this is the main challenge the church is facing today, 1928, was, quote, a rise of secularism all over the world. What's new? <laughs> we thought that was our problem. It's been so for 90 years. And it probably goes back even more so. Back in those days, missionary activity, generally speaking, was from the West to the rest, as they used to say. But the center of gravity of the Christian church has changed uh, dramatically now. There are far more believers in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, 
than in the countries where 90 years ago you would find most of the Christian population. Fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. Now, that doesn't mean it's a huge church. I mean, if you have two and you become four and you become eight, you're growing 100% every year, but it's not as small as that. But there's estimated over half a million believers in Iran now, most of them having to meet in secret places. And uh, I had the opportunity of ministering to some Iranian believers that came out of Iran for Iranian New Year, where they could do without a visa into the neighboring country of Armenia. And it was very interesting how many of these people, young people, have come to Christ and the reasons for it, and mainly a reaction against uh, Islam uh, is, is a reason that they gave for that. In fact, in the Middle East generally, there's a church in Cairo that I know quite well, Casa El Dabara, it's the largest evangelical church in the Middle East. And uh, they are seeing enormous numbers uh, respond to the gospel in the last seven years since the Arab Spring began in 2011. And without going into all the details of how this came about, they, they've started to minister to folks they hadn't before. People came to Christ. They used to have two baptismal services a year because baptism is a big uh, stand in a Muslim country. They had two baptismal services a year. The following year, 2012, they had four. And then they went to six, and they went to 12. And now they have a baptismal service every Sunday afternoon. Four o'clock is the baptismal time. Because so many things are happening there. And Sammy Morris, who is the lead pastor of the church there, who's a surgeon by profession, but he was so involved, and they asked him if he would take leadership. Uh, he says uh, that in the last seven years, they've seen more people come to Christ in Egypt than in the previous 1,000 years. And his assessment is there's a wave of atheism sweeping through the Middle East at the moment. It's an Allah atheism. It is a reaction against extremism, and people are sick and tired of it, and they're turning away from Islam in, grow, in droves, many to secularism. But there are others who are looking because they have a spiritual sense for truth, and that is what they're able to uh, step into and minister to at the moment. And, uh, you know, there are many, many other stories that uh, you've probably heard. I've heard of wonderful things that are happening across the world. We don't see it in our country in the same way. We praise God for people coming to Christ. We don't see the movements that are being evident in some of these places. But God has left us here, and God has placed us here in the environment we're in, and uh, he is as active today as he ever was. And I thought it'd be valuable to look on this 90th anniversary of what Jesus actually said about the church. The word church only twice left his lips in the New Testament, both in Matthew's Gospel, one in Matthew 18 talking about a local congregation. We won't refer to that. But in Matthew 16, when he talked about the universal church, the one that he would build, uh, that every believer who's been brought into a relationship with God has become a member of, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And we read the verses where he spoke about this, and there are two aspects I want to talk about with you. I want to talk about the function of the, uh, sorry, the, the, the foundation of the church, first of all, 
what he says about that, and then about the function of the church. What's its, what's its function? How is it going to operate? Let me talk first about the foundation of the church. Jesus had been with his disciples at least half his ministry when he came to Caesarea Philippi, which is the furthest north that Jesus went with his disciples. And now they're up there. They're probably sitting around one evening and don't know the exact context. And uh, these disciples have listened to Jesus teach for those months. They have seen his miracles. They have watched him in action. And sitting around one evening, he, he said to them, who do people say that I am? What are the rumors that are circulating about me? You probably picked them up somewhere. Tell me what people are saying about me. Who do they think I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Not John Baptisti, whatever your name is here, brother. <laughs> but uh, John the Baptist, who by this time had his head chopped off. He, he was executed, as you know. And uh, the rumor is you're John with your head back on. <laughs> and that was one of the rumors circulating. Another rumor, they said, some say you're Elijah, who, as you know, had been caught up to heaven in a fiery chariot back in uh, First Kings. And the rumor is that you've been in your chariot orbiting for the last seven or eight hundred years, and you've landed, and you're Elijah, come back. <laughs> Others said... Uh, there's a rumor that you're Jeremiah. We don't know why altogether, because Jeremiah was the most miserable character in the Old Testament. We call him the weeping prophet. Maybe, though, because they'd seen in Jesus the brokenheartedness of Jesus over the condition of the people, as Jeremiah had done. But they said, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, in effect, well, I'm not so interested in what some say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter opened his mouth, which was not unusual, and he gave the right answer, which was unusual. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that confession, Jesus then said in verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Big question now is what did Jesus mean in what he said to Peter there? Regarding the rock on which he built his church, there have been several interpretations, there are various interpretations that are currently around as to what this means. There are those who see it as a reference to Peter himself, that Peter himself is the rock, and those who hold that view normally hold the view that Peter himself later went to Rome, where he became the bishop of the church in Rome, and when he died, his successor received the same authority that had been given to Peter, and when he died, the next one, down the line, eventually changed the name from bishop to pope, and it is the basis of the doctrine of papal infallibility and, and papal authority. So when, when a new pope is... is, is Poked, whatever you call it, in, put in place. What do you do with them? I, I didn't get the word right. <laughs> Inducted, is that the word? Whatever they do to popes when they get that white smoke. Uh, they always read this verse. You are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. And the pope is sitting there saying, that's me. I'm the successor. 
There's some problems with that, of course. There's a historical problem. We don't actually know if Peter went to Rome. He may have done, but we don't have evidence that he did. But more importantly, a doctrinal problem, because nowhere else has Peter given any prominence over the other apostles. In his activity, yes, but not in his authority. And so when they met in Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 to discuss the reception of Gentiles, Peter was there. But the chair, in the chair was James, the brother of Jesus. He is the one who presided over that. Galatians 2, you find Paul rebuking Peter. Well, you're not supposed to do that to the Pope. <laughs> so uh, uh, Peter gets a rebuke there. And the most significant statement, Ephesians 2.20, Paul speaks of the church being built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. But I'm sure nobody here holds that particular view, but I just want you to know that I know all about it and know the answers to it and all that kind of thing. And if you do hold that particular view, it's probably because you came to the wrong church by mistake this morning. And uh, we're glad you're here. We're glad you stayed, but you're wrong. And uh, <laughs> you need to go home and tell them that. <laughs> I won't give you other views that are a number, but... Um, I personally would hold to this view that in the Old Testament, God is sometimes referred to as a rock, but human beings never are. Psalm 89, 26, you are my father, my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 94, 22, the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 95, verse 1, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So there God is spoken of as rock. And some of you will know there's a play on words here because the Greek word in which our New Testament was written for Peter is petros. The Greek word for rock is a feminine word, petra. The conversation here took place in Aramaic and the same thing would apply. Cephas was Peter, Kepha was rock. And therefore, with this play on this word, I think it fits everything else to understand that Jesus said, you are Petros, and on this Petra, not you, this Petra, I will build my church. Because the subject of the discussion is, who do men said I am? So the, the subject of the discussion is, who is Jesus? Peter, you've got it right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. You didn't pick this up in the marketplace as a rumor. My father revealed it to you because no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from revelation. And so my father revealed this to you, Peter. But I want you to know this. You are Petros. That's your name. Uh, and Jesus gave him that name, Simon, called him Peter, which means rock. You are Peter on this rock, being the one you just affirmed myself. I'm going to build my church. And this is crucial to us to understand. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And we sang at the beginning this morning, uh, Christ alone, cornerstone. Christ alone is the one on whom we build. The cornerstone has a different connotation, but nevertheless, it's foundational. And this is crucially important to us because Christianity is not built on the teachings of Jesus. It's built on the person of Jesus. 
And if we detach his teaching from his person, we might try to implement his teaching, but it's simply dead. Because everything Jesus taught centered on himself. This sets him apart from every other religious leader that ever lived. The fact that Jesus' teaching was self-centered. You see, other religious leaders have said things like, I will show you the way. What did Jesus say? I am the way. Others have said, I will teach you the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Others have said, I will switch on the light for you. Jesus said, I am the light. Others have said, I will feed you bread. He said, I am the bread of life. Others have said, I'll give you shepherds. I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. Uh, Others have said, I'll open the door for you. He said, I am the door. Others have said, I'll show you where to find life. Jesus said, I am the life. In other words, everything I'm offering to you is offered to you in myself. It is Jesus Christ himself who is the content of the gospel. That he himself comes to live within us. We sang it before. Holiness has a name. Jesus. Victory has a name. It's Jesus. The word has a name. It's Jesus. Redemption has a name. It's Jesus. And that is actually profoundly true. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Where? In our knowledge of Christ. And uh, this, is, this is why Christ himself is central. Not just doctrinally, but experientially to a Christian life that's going to work. There are two invitations that Jesus gave, and I think if we get these two invitations right, we've got most of the Christian life right. And the two invitations were this. First of all, come to me. If you're weary, you're burdened, heavy laden, come to me was the invitation Jesus gave. And then the second invitation having come to me, is abide in me. In John 15, you abide in me, I'll abide in you. He goes on to say, if you do that, you will bear fruit, but apart from me, you will do nothing. And he goes on to say also that to abide in him is to abide in his love, to live experientially with that sense of his, his love and uh, enabling and presence within us. And this is the foundation. In fact, if we were to look at the whole role of Jesus Christ in the church, we discover he's not only the foundation, he's also the head of the body. We also find he's the life of the body and that everything has its source, its function, its enabling, its empowering in the Lord Jesus himself. And Calvary Baptist Church here in Oshawa exists 90 years after that initial nucleus of people uh, began its ministry because Christ has been its message and Christ has been its foundation. All the pictures we saw that go back over these 90 years, there were slogans, Jesus saves, or, or texts, etc. You notice all of them had to do with Jesus, except the one in 1 Samuel 7, hitherto has the Lord helped us, Ebenezer. But that is that is uh, incarnating what Christ is doing for us now in an Old Testament context. So the whole theme, the whole slogans, the whole message, the whole truth, the whole spirit has been that this is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this church will exist for the next decades, maybe the next century, only as long as this remains its core truth.
was reading an article this week by F.F. Bruce, who's one of the great New Testament scholars, uh, biblical scholars, uh, based in the University of Manchester, where he was teaching in, in England. And this was an article on church history, which was not his primary discipline. But writing about church history made a very, I think, profound statement. He said, if church history teaches us one thing more than another, it is that there is a constant tendency to deterioration. Churches are constantly deteriorating. And therefore, getting back to the centrality of Christ is something we don't just assume. We have to keep coming back, keep coming back. I personally have felt for a long time it's like a centrifugal force that's pulling us away from the centrality of Christ all the time. Stay with Christianity. Stay with doctrines. Stay with activities. But move away from Christ himself as the core content of the Christian life. And we begin to deteriorate. And there are many, many churches around, of course, that deteriorate. Nobody started them as those kind of churches. Nobody ever starts a dead church. Nobody says, let's, let's plant a dead church. We want six people. Let's go and start a dead church down the road here. Nobody ever starts that. Nobody ever starts a liberal church, actually. There are stacks around, but nobody says, let's start a liberal church that doesn't have much to say. And we'll see if we can get people here. No, most churches are born out of a genuine work of God. It could be the revival that founded Methodism under John Wesley or Presbyterianism under John Knox, uh, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and the ministry of, um, what's his name? No, not Tozer. Uh, Simpson, A.B. Simpson. And... Uh, I don't know who the big Baptist was, but anyway, whatever. <laughs> John the Baptist, that's right, John the Baptist, yeah. John the Baptist. <laughs> I thought it was Jesus who started the Baptist church, is that right? <laughs> um, but you trace back the history of all these movements, they begin in a genuine, real work of the Spirit of God. And so easily deteriorate. And uh, I know dead Baptist churches too. Maybe you've never seen one, but I know some. Why? Because the doctrines have changed? No, but because the life relationship has changed. And then the doctrines do change, actually. Because uh, the centrality of Christ has been locked. And on this rock, says Jesus, I'm going to build my church. Christ is the author and the finisher. If we know him as the author but not the finisher, it'll end up being a do-it-yourself operation. We come to him but don't abide in him. The Christian life is simply doing the best you can. But as you come to him and live in his strength, in his power. And this church I'm going to build, it's not a building, it's not an organization, it's a living organism. Because it is the body of Christ, is a New Testament uh, description. I don't think that's an allegory. I think that is actually what it is. My body is the place where I live. It's through which I, I, I do my work. Everything you know about me, you know from my body. The body of Christ is the community of believers in whom the Spirit of God lives. And everything that he does in this world, he does through his church. He is sovereign. He can act as he will. But his work in evangelism his work in making disciples is through people. And uh, I don't know how you came to Christ, but I have no doubt there was some human agency that was a channel, a means, maybe a church, maybe a Sunday school, maybe a witness at work, maybe somebody knocked on your door one day and uh, was a means of leading you to Christ. I don't know, but there'll be somebody in the process. 
and that's God's plan. It's a living uh, organism. It, it doesn't mean it doesn't need organizing, of course, because uh, my body is an organism, but it needs organizing. <laughs> but I'm not an organization. You know, I'm not propelled along by the organizational magnificence uh, of my body. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not organized magnificently. It's the life within my body that drives me and you, and so it is within the church of Jesus Christ, his life, his presence, by his spirit. That's the foundation of the church. It then talks about its function by saying that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I wonder what that conjures up in your mind. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I used to assume, before I studied this properly on one occasion, what that meant was that the church would be so secure and strong that even though all hell might be let loose against the church, the church will always be able to withstand the attacks of Satan and the attacks of hell. I thought that's probably what it meant until I studied it, and I realized he's talking about the gates of hell. If he's talking about the gates of hell, he's not talking about hell attacking the church, because gates are not attacking weapons. Gates are defensive weapons. Not only that, gates are the most vulnerable part. You go to an old city like the old city of Jerusalem today, and you find gates. It's, it's surrounded by a wall, but there are gates, treaty points leading in. In the old days, when armies would attack on foot, the most vulnerable place in that city would be the gates, and they would try to break them down to get access. And it is a picture not of hell attacking the church, and the church withstanding its attack, but it's a picture of the church attacking hell, and hell being unable to withstand the attack. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this perhaps revolutionizes some of our thinking about spiritual warfare. We often think of spiritual warfare as the devil attacking me. And therefore we think that victory in the Christian life is my ability to withstand his attacks. I don't steal, I don't cheat, don't commit adultery, etc. Then I'm being victorious. But here, the picture of spiritual warfare is the church on the offensive and as a result, driving back the front line of hell. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, look at the next verse, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever that means, there are two conclusions we can draw very quickly. The first conclusion is he's talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, it's not something peripheral. It's something central, something which unlocks the activity of the kingdom of heaven. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And then he says, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. The initiative takes place on earth, interestingly. We might have expected him to say, what we bind in earth, what we bind, uh, what, sorry, what we bind in heaven, you will bind on earth, etc. The other way around. But he says, no, the initiative takes place on earth. Now, there is an unusual uh, Greek construction here, apparently, and uh, without going into the details of the 
perfect participle passive and the simple future and the future passive simple duda, which I don't understand anyway, <laughs> so you might not. <laughs> I'll tell you what it all means, apparently, according to people who do know what that means. What it means is what you bind on earth will be consistent with that which has already been bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be consistent with that which has already been loosed in heaven. In other words, activity on earth doesn't make things happen in heaven that wouldn't otherwise happen. But your activity on earth enables what is already planned in heaven to be released, bound, I think bound is simply the restrictive negative aspect, uh, loosed is the positive releasing aspect. In other words, this church I'm going to build, I'm giving you the keys. So I don't have the keys. Don't blame me for the lack of evangelistic work going on in the world. Don't blame me, he might have said, for the lack of mission activity. No, I'm giving you the keys. But these keys are this. And as you act in accordance with what is planned in heaven, what is planned in heaven will be released on earth to you. Does that make sense? Or have I confused you even more? Does that not mean I confused you even more? I see some people nodding there. Uh, but this principle is, is there through Scripture. God initiates every divine act that is bringing about the fulfillment of his purposes, but he implements them through the obedience of his people. So you have a verse, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 30, 22, where God says, I sought for man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me, for the land that I should not destroy it. So I looked for a man, says God, look for a man, but I found none. I couldn't find a man who would stand in the breach there. Therefore, he says, I poured out my indignation upon them. I looked for a man, I couldn't find a man, therefore, instead of receiving the, the salvation that he was making available to them, they received instead the judgment of God on them. Why? Because I looked for a man and I couldn't find one. Look for a person. Couldn't find one. See, the principle is that God works through the obedience and the dependence of his people. In the Old Testament, you know, you remember Moses, when Moses uh, met God at the burning bush, and uh, God spoke to him, and what God said to him initially was all about himself. He said, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So I have come down to rescue them. And I can imagine Moses listening saying, this is absolutely fantastic. We've been here in Egypt for 400 years. We've been slaves for many of those years. And now here's God saying, I have seen the misery. I have heard them. I'm concerned about the suffering. Uh, their cries reach me. I have seen the way Egyptians are oppressing them. I have come down to rescue them. Wow, fantastic, God. You are going to do this. That's, that's amazing. Thank you so much. How are you going to do it? So now go, he says in verse 12, I'm sending you. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I'm sending you. I, I thought you just said you were going to do it. I, I can quote it because I remember what you just said. You said, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about the suffering. Their cries reached me. I have seen the way they are oppressed. I have come down to rescue them. That's what you just said. You have come down to rescue them. Yes, Moses. 
asking God to rescue them, but I'm doing it through you. Which, by the way, is why God said to him at the beginning of that conversation, take off your shoes. Not because, you know, there's any uh, protocol in that, but Moses, it is me who's going to do it in your shoes. Give me your shoes. It'll be me, but in you. And so Moses says, 40 years later in the desert, our shoes never wore out because God in our shoes was enough. And uh, God said, wherever you place the soles of your feet, that place is yours. Why? Because God's in your shoes. That's another story. But the principle is the principle. That God says, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it through you. So the extent to which you're acting in obedience to God and dependence on God is the extent to which what God has planned will be implemented in the way he wants it to be implemented. As Moses bound on earth that which has been bound in heaven, God would bound on earth what Moses loosed on earth, what God already loosed in heaven would become loosed on earth as well. And there are other examples of that. Uh, and, and you could look at a number of Old Testament stories and you see the same principle. That it's God at work through people. God at work through people who depend on him and who obey him. And so I'm going to build my church, said Jesus, and on this rock, which is myself, and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. So it's your job now to fulfill what I have planned for you to do on earth. And as you act in obedience, what is already planned in heaven will become implemented and become effective and become fruitful. And it is that which gives us confidence, isn't it, that God is at work in our world. We say what he needs from us is our availability. Lord, I'm available to you. I want to trust you. I want to obey you. When you show me in your word things which are uh, for every believer, I, I, within that context, find the particular thing you have for me, which is particularly for me as God guides us by his spirit and so on. And as I act courageously in obedience to you, in dependence on you, you will work. And he does. And he will. And he's promised to. Obedience and dependence cannot be separated. Obedience to God, dependence on God cannot be separated. They're like two wings on an airplane. Which is the most important wing on an airplane, do you think? Uh, left or the right one? <laughs> well, of course, they are interdependently uh, essential. You know, obedience without dependence will lead to legalism. And you'll crash the plane. It'll just be doing things I'm supposed to do, I'm ought to do, and just legalism. Mysticism, uh, sorry, uh, dependence without obedience will lead to unhealthy forms of mysticism, and you'll crash the plane. Obedience coupled with dependence, and you'll fly. The one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. He calls you, obey him. He will do it. Depend on him. And he brings about his end purposes. And so the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years continues to spread and grow. I actually had a conversation yesterday with a young man who said, I believe that the church will be extinct by the time I'm an old man. Now this is a young man who was a Christian, turned away and he's no longer interested and he's done a lot of reading and things. He said, so what do you think that? Because it is 
increasingly irrelevant. The more we increase in our scientific knowledge, the less we need this kind of uh, faith stuff, which is believing what you can't prove and kind of filling the gaps. And so I don't know how old you're going to live, but if you live to 90, and he's 22, I think, you might discover the church is bigger than it is today, stronger than it is today. What you will know is there will be a remnant for sure. Why? Because we're smart? No, because Jesus said, who would you say I am? Well done, Peter. This has been revealed to you. This is the starting point. No one can say Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's always the starting point. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, the front line of hell, will not prevail against it. And I'm giving you the keys. What you bind in dependence upon me, you will find what has already been bound in heaven will become operative through you and bound on earth. What you loose in dependence upon me will already have been loosed in heaven, become operative on earth. And the work of Jesus Christ will continue. But you know, if one day we stand before God and we say, you know, I was not very impressed with the way you brought people to yourself. There weren't a lot of people getting converted when I was on earth. <laughs> there wasn't a lot going on in the mission field when I was around. God may say to you, let me just remind you something. I gave you the keys. I gave you the keys. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning that we're not caught up in some religiosity or in some place to find our security and some meaning in life. We're caught up in relationship with the living God, the true God. We thank you for drawing us to yourself. For those of us who may not know you this morning, we pray that you give us the eyes to see that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us Jesus is Lord and that we can know you and experience you, be born again of your spirit and dwelt by you. And for those of us who know that, we pray, Lord, that we will live humbly in dependence upon you, knowing you have a strategy in our world. You're planning that we are part of that and we just want to be available for that obedient to you and dependent on you. And we thank you that the front line of hell will not have the resources to stand. Make this real, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's been a common human activity that God's people have participated in over the millennia. All the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, as Ezra praised the Lord. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And their joy was very great. And so is ours. Go with great joy this morning and come back this evening and enjoy a great celebration as well. God bless you.